Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Author Ken Dunnington shares the story of his friend, who during grad school worked as a paramedic, basically to work himself through grad school. And his friend told him about one of the more uh, grisly experiences on the job. His friend received, or they received an anonymous call from a heroin addict uh, who was in an abandoned apartment building on the verge of, of death. And his friend, the paramedics, when they arrived, when he got there, he saw this man huddled in a corner, shivering and unresponsive. And he said all around him were piles of rotten trash and syringes and lighters, all the, the paraphernalia of a heroin addict. And he said to his friend, he said, what was that light to walk upon something like that? And he said it was terrifying. But he said more than that, it was probably the first time that I really understood what worship was like and how important the object of our worship is and how the object of our worship begins to shape us and to change us. It was a horrifying experience. All sin, that's an example, an extreme example, but all sin is essentially counterfeit worship. You and I, every day, at every moment, are worshiping. It's not a matter of if we're worshiping. It's a matter of whether our worship is true or counterfeit. 
And true versus counterfeit worship produce very different results and shape us in very different ways. This passage in Matthew 2 is a passage about worship. It's a passage about the wise men coming to worship King Jesus. But it's a passage that has really three characters in it. You have the wise men, but you also have Herod, and you have the scribes and the Pharisees. All three of these characters teach us something about worship and why true worship is so essential to our flourishing. That's the question at hand. Why is true worship essential to your flourishing as a human being? First, because true worship destroys the kingdom of self. Verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Why does Matthew emphasize the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, because great King David was also born in Bethlehem. And if you remember from chapter one, Matthew is going out of his way to let everyone know that Jesus came in the line of David. And now he's saying he was born in the same place as David. What's the point? Well, you have two kings in this passage, not just King Herod, but you've got King Jesus as well. Now, who was Herod? This was Herod the Great. He was not a Jew, but he was placed in power as king of Judea by the Romans in 40 BC. He was a ruthless tyrant. Towards the end of his life, he suffered an illness that only increased his paranoia, so much so that he became very cruel, very vindictive, ended up killing his wife and at least two of his sons. You say, well, why was he called Herod the Great? Well, the other side of Herod is that he was an excellent builder. He rebuilt the the temple in Jerusalem. He rebuilt Samaria. He was an excellent administrator. But at the end of the day, he was a tyrant. And so as a tyrant, when there was a potential threat to his reign, he became very troubled. And that's what happened. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, this being a child born king of the Jews, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The passage tells us that he summoned the chief priests and the scribes to find out where Jesus was born. Then he summoned the wise men to figure out when Jesus was born. And then we learn in verse 16 of chapter two that when he realized he had been tricked by the wise men, that they didn't come back to tell him where Jesus was, he became furious. And that's when he ordered that all male children two years and younger be killed in Judea. He was a tyrant. Herod worshiped himself. And any threat to the kingdom of self was to be 
eliminated. The truth is that whenever Jesus arrives on the scene, he is always a threat to the kingdom of self. When Jesus arrives, he's always a threat to the kingdom of self. C.S. Lewis was an atheist into his adult years. Atheist meaning he did not believe there was a God. And in his adult years, he actually turned from the kingdom of self to bow the knee in worship of King Jesus. He became a follower of Christ. C.S. Lewis went on to be a very prolific writer. And it was at one of his lectures, when he was giving a lecture at the end, that there was a Q&A period. And someone in the Q&A period asked C.S. Lewis, he said, which of the world's religions give its followers the greatest happiness? And C.S. Lewis paused for a second, and then he said, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that we're born into sin. We're not born pure and innocent. We're born guilty and sinful. That also means that you and I come out of the womb selfish, egotistical, and incredibly prideful. You say, what's the evidence of that? You don't have to teach a young child how not to share, right? And you don't have to teach a young child, right, how not to share, how to be selfish. That's, that's natural. That comes out of a child. Two times in his gospel, Matthew's gonna remind us or reveal to us Jesus' confrontation of the kingdom of self. It's in Matthew 16, 25 and 10, 39, when Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, why does Jesus confront pride and selfishness? because he's opposed to it. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud. He doesn't say, I just don't like it when my people are prideful. I wish they weren't so prideful. No, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why is he opposed to it? Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. Pride is destructive. It destroys you. It destroys people around you. Because essentially, pride is playing God. And you and I are not fit or qualified to play God. And when we try to, it leaves a trail of bodies in the ditch, usually including our own. Pride is destructive. Now, here's the problem. By definition, pride is blind to itself. Left to your own resources, 
with no help from the outside, no help from anyone else, just left to your own resources, you are unable by definition to see your pride. It is absolutely blind to itself. They did this research study. They polled a a group of people. And and the results of this were really intriguing. 17% of the people polled in this group, 17% said they were overly concerned about themselves. In other words, 17% of these people said, I'm prideful, I'm selfish. 60% of the people that were polled in this group said that most people are way too concerned about themselves. Do you see that? 60% said, yeah, most people are really prideful. In other words, the, the, the little experiment revealed that we are quick to identify everyone else is prideful, but I'm, I'm not, right? Because we're blind. We're blind to our pride. And there is only one person who perfectly sees and accurately sees your pride. All the married couples are really nervous right now. No, it's not your spouse. It's not your friend. It's not your family member. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sees your pride. If you're in Christ, the scriptures say God is for you, which means that God is committed in love to confronting you in your pride through the person of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that happens directly from the Holy Spirit. Other times the Holy Spirit confronts you through a spouse or a family member, or a friend. Don't resist the stirring of the Holy Spirit and allow your heart to become hardened in pride. Counterfeit worship, when I say counterfeit worship, I mean the worship of anything or any person outside of God. Counterfeit worship will always blind you to your pride. It will never reveal your pride. Only true worship of the one and only God of Jesus Christ will open your eyes in humility to your pride. That's why true worship is so essential to your flourishing because true worship is the only way that the destructive nature of pride can be revealed in your life so that you can see it, own it, and humility turn from it. Why is true worship essential to your flourishing? First, it destroys the kingdom of self. But second, it destroys the kingdom of hypocrisy. The kingdom of hypocrisy, look at verse four. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Herod, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Because Herod was king over the Jewish people in Judea, 
he had been around them enough to hear that there was a Messiah coming, that this Messiah would be king of the Jews, and that because he knew the scribes and Pharisees were so well-versed in the Old Testament, surely they would know where this Messiah was to be born. And Herod was right. Verse five to six, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, a vast majority of the scribes were Pharisees. Here's the, uh, here's the elephant in the room question that surfaces at this point in this passage. Why didn't the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Bethlehem to worship King Jesus like the three Gentile astrologers did from a Far East country? They had the promises. They had the prophecies. They had the story. I mean, they were well prepared that when it would happen, they could go worship King Jesus, but they didn't. They did nothing. They gave Herod the answer. And it was these three astrologers, as we're gonna see, that went off to worship King Jesus. As we progress through Matthew's gospel, you're going to learn a lot about the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus reserved some of his harshest language for the Pharisees and scribes. He said in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The kingdom of hypocrisy is the kingdom of pretending. It's the kingdom of appearances where the outside doesn't match the inside. The outward behaviors are inconsistent from the the inner motives. The Boston Marathon is one of the iconic marathons in our country. It's one of the greatest marathons. It's it's where all the runners gather. And and the person that that wins and is crowned the Boston Marathon champion is, is kind of put in the the shelves of history as one of the greatest runners ever and and the greatest athletes of all time. Well, in the the 1980 Boston Marathon, the first woman to cross the finish line was a woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz. She crossed the finish line. You know, the victor's wreath was put on her, lights and cheering, and it was this amazing moment. And what was even more amazing is that no one knew who she was. 
You know, the Boston Marathon always has the elite favorites that are gonna, one of them's gonna win the race. They didn't know who she was. She was relatively unknown. And then people began to kind of look at her and, and her, her physique didn't look like a, an elite Boston Marathon champion physique. And people started saying, wow, I don't remember. We didn't remember seeing her on the 26.2 mile course. Question after question. And then finally the truth came out. She had jumped into the race in the last mile. There's a way to win a marathon. There was a massive gap between her confessed identity and her functional identity. Her confessed identity was Boston Marathon champion. Her functional identity was cheater and liar. In the same way, there was a massive gap between the Pharisees' confessed theology and their functional theology. Their confessed theology was the beauty of a whitewashed tomb on the outside. Their functional theology was death and uncleanness on the inside. And sadly, the same can be true of you and me. There can be a massive gap between our confessed beliefs and our functional beliefs. Let me give you a few examples. You can believe that all people are created in the image of God, that all people are image bearers, and yet you can label and categorize people and begin treating them according to how you have labeled them and how you have categorized them. Or you can believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Say, what's that mean? Basically, that's the doctrine that says we are absolutely and utterly sinful. No one is righteous. You can believe that doctrine, and yet you can be surprised at someone's sin or even your own sin, and so surprised and shocked by it that you begin to deny that person's sin or deny your own sin because it's out of character. Or... You can believe that the perfect righteousness of Christ is yours by faith and yet get really defensive when someone corrects you or when someone confronts your sin. This massive gap. True worship destroys the kingdom of hypocrisy because true worship destroys the reasons for you to be hypocritical destroys your motivation to do it. The massive gap between your confessed belief and your functional belief, in, in other words, between what you say you believe and how you live, we all have some gap there. 
I mean, we're all hypocrites. That's part of being a sinner. But that gap arises out of a deep insecurity. The reason you label people or categorize people, that flows out of a deep insecurity in who you are. Or the reason you get defensive when someone confronts you in your sin arises out of a deep insecurity. When you are secure in Jesus Christ, when your security rests in him, then the reasons to be hypocritical, the reasons to pretend dissolve, they disappear. And that's why true worship, worship of Christ is so essential to your flourishing. Why is true worship essential? to your flourishing because it destroys the kingdom of self. It destroys the kingdom of hypocrisy, of pretending. And finally, true worship unites you to the true king or to the life-giving, not life-stealing, but life-giving king. Look at verses one to two. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, who are these wise men? Well, tradition and even Christmas songs, and I may be ruining one of our Christmas songs by saying this, say that they were kings. And that's highly unlikely. The reality is these were students of the stars. They studied the stars and they were deeply interested in religion. So you put those together and what you have is most likely these were astrologers. They were astrologers. And it says that they were from the East, could mean Persia or Babylon. Both were places where the Jews lived at different times because of exile and dispersion. And so we can conclude that these astrologers had contact with the Jewish community when they were in exile or dispersion and therefore learned from this Jewish community, there's gonna be a Messiah that's to come, a king of the Jews. Now, regarding the star that guided them, there's a lot of speculation. What, what was that? What was the star? What was the phenomenon? And there's theories of it was an explosion of a supernova or it was a, uh, a, a comet or, you know, all these kind of, ex those are all so speculative. I think where we rest in it is that these astrologers, by their study of the stars and their knowledge of a Messiah to come, a king to come, studied the stars and concluded that a great king had been born in Judea. And so clearly they followed that by going to the capital city of Jerusalem and inquiring, where is this child? But here's what's interesting. These are, these are Gentiles. These aren't Jews. Gentile astrologers, they traveled several hundred miles over the course of several months to come worship Jesus. And what they do when they see Jesus 
tells us a lot about worship, the act of worship, and why it's so essential to our flourishing. What do they do when they see Jesus? First, look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, when they saw the star, verse nine says, basically read that as when they arrived at the place where Jesus was. They didn't just rejoice with joy. That would be redundant. But they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Lots of redundancy in that phrase on great purpose. Matthew is trying to communicate the joy that these astrologers felt when they saw Jesus. Probably similar to what Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, said in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is not talking about surfacy, happy, clappy, circumstantial joy when he writes this verse. And the reason we know that is because the entire letter that he writes of 1 Peter is about suffering. It's about suffering. This is a deep-rooted, deep-seated joy no matter what the circumstance. I can tell you in my life that some of the most memorable moments of this inexpressible joy, whether it be here at a service on Sunday or in quiet worship at my house, have come in the moments of the most intense suffering. This is a joy that is deep. True worship unites you to the most joyful person in the universe, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most joyful person in the universe. Creation in Genesis 1 was an explosion of joy. And we know that Jesus was the agent of creation with the Father. An explosion of joy, not just the natural world, but people, you and me. And we know that God's word is an explosion of joy. Which for some of you, you may go, ah, that strikes me a little odd because there's all kinds of parts of the Bible that are pretty dark, real, honest. Well, the scriptures are long. You say, why are they so long? Why is the Bible such a long read? It's because God is patient with his people. And God is patient with us because he loves us and the scriptures are about his plan to finally and fully share his joy 
with his people for eternity. True worship unites you to Jesus Christ, the most joyful person in the universe. Notice though what the wise men do next. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Again, these are Gentile astrologers. And they come into the presence of Jesus and they fall down. We see this throughout the scriptures, that when people come into the presence of God, they physically fall prostrate before him. You say, why? Well, there's a great example of this in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah comes before the holiness and the glory of God. And when he's confronted with that, he says, proclaims, woe is me for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. This falling down is the posture of humility. It's the posture of submission. It's the posture of, of confession. It's why it's not popular in our culture. Our, our culture is such a think positive culture that confession as seen, is seen as a joy stealer. And yet the opposite is true. Confession, and Pastor Matt, as he leads the confession on Sundays, does such a good job of this. Confession is not morbid introspection. It's not the time where we go into depression. It's actually a time of great joy because confession is the proclamation that I'm not gonna play God anymore. I'm not gonna pretend like I'm in control. I'm not gonna hide from God like our first parents did in my sin. I'm gonna confess it freely. And when we do that, we hear from Jesus Christ who is the only holy, perfectly holy person in the universe. Let me say that again. He's the most joyful person in the universe and he is the only perfectly holy person in the universe. And it's Jesus Christ who says to us exactly what was said to Isaiah when Isaiah is in a posture of humility and submission and confession over woe is me and my sin. God says to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Jesus, the only holy person in the universe says to you, when you come before him humbly in a posture of confession and submission, he says, you are forgiven. And my perfect righteousness is yours by faith. True worship unites us to the only holy person in the universe, Jesus Christ. But then last, look what the wise men do to sum up their meeting with Jesus. Verse 11, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. All three of these gifts were extremely valuable. Frankincense was used medicinally. Myrrh was a spice and a perfume. And of course, gold is extremely valuable. There are some who have tried to tie symbolic meanings to each gift and what that means for worship. I think that's going a step too far. What, what's happening here is you've got three Gentiles 
that traveled hundreds of miles over the course of several months to bring expensive gifts before the true king, Jesus. These were valuable gifts. These Gentile astrologers in that moment were united to the most generous person in the universe. And that's what true worship does. It unites you to the most generous person in the universe, Jesus Christ. I mean, how more generous can you get than giving your very life for someone? That's what Jesus did. And God the Father gave his one and only Son. Our generosity is only and always a response to God's generosity towards us. He gave us his best. And we give our best in return. We don't give scraps. And by that, I mean, take our time, for instance. We don't fill our schedules with our time on everything and then at the end of the week go, what time do I have left that I can give to God? Or the same could be true of our money. At the end of the month, we don't go, okay, we've spent our money, we've used it on everything. Hey, do we have anything left that we can give to God? No. He gave us his best and we give our best in return, not out of guilt, but out of joy. Let me speak to giving for a second. Oftentimes we treat giving as something that we do if there's something left over. But God calls our giving, in fact, Jesus, and we're gonna see it in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about money more than we're comfortable with. <laughs> I mean, really, he does. He talks about money in a way we're like, okay, just, can we move on? It's very uncomfortable. But he does because our money and our giving is an act of worship. And it's done in response. I wanna challenge you with your giving to the church, to the kingdom, to missionaries, your giving. Right? I wanna challenge you in this month of September to, to think and pray about it and be deliberate about it. Not if there's something left, I'll do it. But no, as an act of worship in response to God being generous with us, what does it look like for me, for us to be generous to God and to his kingdom through our giving? True worship unites you to Jesus Christ, the most generous, the most joyful, and the only holy person in the universe. That's what true, true worship does. And when you think about it, I've said, true worship is essential to your flourishing. Can you think of three words beyond these three that describe flourishing? I mean, flourishing in joy, flourishing in generosity, and flourishing in confession and humility that reminds us 
that Jesus Christ, the only holy person, gives us his perfectly holy record as a result of us simply coming to him in faith? That's flourishing. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. In other words, our deities shape our identities. He shares about the evolutionary scientist, Charles Darwin, who once wrote in his autobiography, my chief employment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. And from his work, he added, I am never idle. It's the only thing which makes life endurable to me. And then Darwin went on to say, which really answers the question, what effect did Charles Darwin giving himself solely to scientific work, how did that affect him as a person and the person he became? Listen to what he wrote. Charles Darwin wrote this. Up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure. And I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now for many years, I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss, Darwin said, is a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for everything, every subject except science. Now, let's just transition for a second and see how this principle we are becoming or what we are worshiping we are becoming worked out in the life of another influential, very smart theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards at the age of 19, maybe freshman, sophomore, college age, that sort of age, Edwards wrote, resolve to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him. And then later in, in Edwards' life, he reflected on how the object of worship affected who he was and who he became. And he said this, this is you know, the worship of Christ brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or garden. What we are worshiping is what we are becoming. Here's an example of two very, very gifted men. One became a withered leaf. One became a garden. And that difference was based on who and what they worshiped and it affected who they became. That is why true worship, the worship of Jesus Christ alone is absolutely essential to your flourishing. Let's pray. Father, We all are well too aware of our pride 
and our selfishness. You've revealed it to us over and over. So often we, we do worship a kingdom of self. And Father, we're aware of our hypocrisy, that massive gap between what we say we believe and how we live. And yet we, we bring that before you in true worship, recognizing and knowing that only united to you do we flourish. And Father, thank you that now following a sermon like this, that we get to receive your generosity, the Lord's Supper, the reminder of what you have given to us, your, your only son, so that we may flourish as the people you've called us to be. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us by faith. And pray now as we sing, as we prepare, that you would prepare our hearts to feast on your goodness and on your love and on your grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.